You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. The Earthman's Burden by R.F. Starzl, Part 2. Presently, he came to the little rise of ground where Morones had disappeared, but a painstaking search did not reveal the factor. There were, however, a number of other trails that joined the very faint trail he had been following, and now there was a well-defined track which continued to lead upward. With a grimace of disgust, O'Lear again plunged into the odorous underbrush and travelled parallel to the trail. It was well he did so, for several Mercurians passed swiftly in tent, so it seemed, in answering a shrill call that at times came faintly to the ear. They carried slender spears. Several more Mercurians passed. The growth was thinning out, and O'Lear did not dare to proceed further. However, from his hiding place he could discern a number of irregular cave openings, apparently leading downward. They were apparently the entrances to one of the native cavern colonies, or possibly of a meeting place. No earthman had ever entered one, but it was thought they had underground openings into the river. As the cave openings were obviously natural, O'Lear conjectured that there might be others that were not used. After an anxious search, he found one, narrow and irregular, well hidden under the broad, glossy leaves of some uncatalogued vegetation. As it showed no evidence of use, O'Lear unhesitatingly slid down into it. It was very narrow and irregular, so that often he was barely able to squeeze through. The roots of trees choked the passage for a dozen feet or so, requiring the vigorous use of a knife. Bathed in sweat, his uniform, a filthy mass of rags, O'Lear at last saw light. The passage ended abruptly near the roof of a large natural cavern. Lights glistened on stalactites, which cut off O'Lear's larger view, and voices came from below. By craning his neck, the officer could look between the pendant icicles of rock and see a fire burning on a huge oblong block of stone. Figures were sitting on the floor round this block, hundreds of Mercurians. The leaping flames made their white and green faces and bodies look frog-like and less human than usual. But the figure that dominated the whole assemblage, both by its own hugeness and the magnetic power that flowed from it, was not of a Mercury, but of Pluto. For the benefit of those who have never seen a stuffed Plutonian in our museums, and they are very rare, let me refer you to the pious books still to be found in ancient library collections. The ancients personified their fears and hates in a being they called the devil. The resemblance between the devil, of their imagination, and a plutonian is really astounding. Horns, hoofs, tail. Almost to the smallest detail, the resemblance is there. Philosophers have written books on the coincidence in appearance of the ancient devil, and the modern decadent Plutonians. The Plutonians were once numerous and far advanced in science, and no doubt they called on the earth many times in prehistoric days, and the so-called devil was a true picture of those vicious invaders, who are somewhat less human than usually portrayed. What was once classed as superstition was therefore a true racial memory, Long before our ancestors came out of their caves to build houses, the Plutonians had mastered interplanetary travel, only to forget the secret until human ingenuity should reveal it once more. 
The modern plutonium in that dank cave was over 10 feet tall and it is easy to see why he dominated the assemblage. His black visage was set in an evil smile. His ebony body glistened in the firelight. He held a three-pronged spear in one hand and sat on a pile of rocks, a sort of rough throne, so that he towered magnificently above all others. He spoke the Mercurian language, although the liquid intonations came harshly from his sneering lips. Are ye assembled, frog folk, that ye may hear the decision of your thinking ones? he asked. A respectful peeping chorus signified assent, but in that there was a hint of unrest, even of fear. Speak ye, thinking one, your commands. Hear me first, an old Mercurian, unusually tall, faded and dry, looking his thick hide wrinkled like crushed leather, rose slowly to his feet and stepped before the oblong stone. His back was to the Plutonian, his face to the crescent of chiefs. The old wise one. A twittering murmur went around the assemblage. Hear the old wise one. My people... I like this not, began the ancient. The lords of the green star have dealt with us fairly. Each phase they have brought us the things we wanted. He touched his spear and a few gaudy ornaments on his otherwise naked body. In exchange for the worthless white sap of our trees, if we longer offend the lords of the green star. A raucous laugh interrupted the Mercurian's feeble voice and it echoed eerily from the walls of the chamber. Valueless ye call the white sap, sneered the Plutonian. Hear me. The sap you call valueless is dearer than life itself to the lords of the green star, for they are afflicted in great numbers with a stinking death they call cancer. It destroys their vitals and nothing, nothing in this broad universe can help them save this white sap ye give them. In your hands ye have the power to bring the proud lords of the green star to their knees. They would fill this chamber many times with their most priceless treasures for the sap you give them so freely. Withhold the sap, and your thinking ones may go to the green star itself to rule over its lords. They are desperate. Their emissaries may even know beyond the way to beg your pleasure. Speak, thinking ones. Would ye not rule the green star? But the chiefs failed to become enthusiastic. One of them rose and addressed the plutonian. O Lord of the Outer Orbit, for near one full phase have ye dwelt among us, and well should ye know we have no desire for conquest. We fear to go to the Green Star to rule. Then let me rule for ye, exclaimed the Plutonium instantly. My brothers will abide with ye as your guests, shall see that ye receive a fair reward for the White Sap, and I will convey your commands to the Lords of the Green Star. The old wise one raised his withered hands so that the uncertain twittering of voices which followed the plutonian suggestion subsided. My children, piped the feeble old voice, the black lord has spoken cunning words, but they are false. It is plain to see that he desires to rule the green star, and our welfare does not concern him. If so it be that the white sap is of great value to the lords of the green star, it is still of no value to us. And if the gifts they bring to us are of no value to them, they are dear to us. The Plutonian sneered. Dearer than the paste of strange dreams? A startled hush fell among the assembled Mercurians. 
They looked guiltily at one another, avoiding the eyes of the old wise one. What is this? shrilled he, turning furiously to the plutonium. Have you brought the paste of evil to our abode, knowing well the strict prescription of our tribe? Fool! Your death is upon ye! But the plutonian only grinned and spread his glistening black hands in a careless gesture. High overhead, peering through the stalactites, O'Lear instantly understood the plutonian's strange power. The paste of strange dreams, a fearsome narcotic of that far-swinging dark planet, more insidious and devastating than any drug ever produced on Earth, it had wrought frightful havoc among many solar races. The Earthmen had opened the lanes, broken the age-old barriers of distance, so that the harpies of evil could traffic their poison from planet to planet. So the paste of strange dreams was added to the Earthmen's burden. Seize him, the evil one, shrieked the old chief, but the Mercurians sat sullen and silent and the plutonian sneered. Finally one of the chiefs arose, and with an effort faced the old wise one and said, The strange dreams are dearer to us than all else. Do as he says. The piping voices rose in eager acclamation, but the old wise one held up his claws, waiting until silence returned. Wait, wait, before you commit this folly, hear the green star man. Many times has he demanded audience. Let him come in. It is not permitted, demurred one of the chiefs. Ye permitted this being of evil to enter. Let him enter also. He is in the outer chambers now, one of the guardsmen spoke. His face is like the centre of a ringstorm. Let him enter. Marone strode into the room angrily. Blinded by the fire after the darkness of the antechambers, he did not at first see the plutonian. He strode up to the ancient chief and glared at him. Does the old wise one learn wisdom at last, he rasped. The ancient shrank away from him, as did the nearer of the lesser chiefs. The old wise one thinks less of his wisdom, he replied wearily. Behold, he pointed to the enthroned plutonian. Marone started. His hand flashed to his side and came away empty. Deft fingers had extracted his ray tube. But he was a man of courage. Never could it be said to his shame that an earthman cringed in the sight of lesser races. So it's you, my sooty friend, he snarled in English. The plutonian accomplished linguist replied, As you see, you don't look very happy, Mr. Marones. Marones regarded him impassively, his eyes frosty. That explains everything, he said at last with cold deliberation. First Samus, then Boyd. Going to finish me next, I suppose. The plutonian twisted the end of an eyebrow and smiled. Interested in them. What did you do with the bodies? The plutonian jerked his thumb carelessly. The river you call the blue is swift and deep, but before you follow them there is certain information I wish to get from you. Where is the soldier who came to visit you? A crafty light came into Marone's face. He is not far from here, waiting for me. O'Lear in his cramped hiding place could not help feeling a warm glow of admiration for Marone's nerve, because Marone's thought him well on his way to earth. Nargle, what did your master do with the visitor? Drove him back to the Green Star, Nargle said promptly. And the oxygen tanks, did you empty them? 
I let them hiss. Nargle's grin was sharkish. News to you, eh, Maroons? Your officer's corpse has probably dropped into the sun by this time. Tell me, why did you drive him off? Marone sagged perceptively. To gain a little time, he said truthfully. I knew I should be blamed and ruined for life. I didn't know you were here, damn you. I hoped to get this mess with the natives straightened up before he'd come back with reinforcements. Yes, well, you owe some months of life already. Your presence here has been more or less embarrassing. But I had to let you live, or I'd have the whole IFP here to investigate. Now that you've failed in keeping them from getting interested, you may do me one more service. The black giant grinned. I've often wondered at the Earthman's prestige all over the solar system. Even tonight, soft and helpless as you are, these natives fear you. You will, therefore, be an object lesson in the helplessness of Earthmen. Morones was pale but courageous. With contempt in every line of him, he watched some of the less frightened chiefs, at the command of the plutonium, push aside some of the blazing blocks of fungus on the stone to make room for his body. At last he raised his hands. Frog folk, he cried, if you do this thing, the lords of the green stars will come, and they will come with fires hotter than the sun. They will blast your rivers with a power greater than the thunder of the ringstorms. They will fill your caves with a purple smoke that turns your bones to water. Shrill cries of fear almost drowned out his words. All the Mercurians had seen evidence of the dreadful power of the Earthmen. They began milling around, then stood rooted by the roar of the Plutonian's voice. Lies! Lies! he bellowed. See, they are weak and egglets. He stepped down, picked Marones up by one shoulder and held him dangling, high above the heads of all. Marones clawed and tore at the broady arm. He made a ludicrous picture. Soon the simple natives made a sniffling sound of mirth, and the Plutonian, satisfied at last, set him down again. He tells truth. The old wise one had climbed to the top of the stone block. The lords of the green star have their power, not in their bodies, but it is great. It is greater far than the frog folk. It is greater than the lords of the outer orbit. They will come, even as the surly one has said, and great shall be our sorrow. It is not yet too late. Release him, and deliver to him the white sap. Seize this evil one. The feeble, fickle minds were being swayed again. In a gust of impatience, the plutonian stepped down, seized the old chief's skinny body in his great black hands, and snapped him in two. There was a tearing of tough cords and tissue, and the two halves fell into the fire. For an instant, the Mercurians were stunned. Then some of them vented hissing sounds of rage, while others prostrated themselves on the floor. The black giant watched them narrowly for a moment, then turned his attention to Marones. He seized him by the arm and drew him slowly and irresistibly to him. The murder of the old wise one had been done so quickly that Alir was unable to prevent it. Had he been able to use his ray weapon, he could have burned the plutonian down, but it had been bent at one of the narrow turns of the crevice he had come down. The need for extreme lightness in weapons was rather overdone in those early days, and a little rough handling made them useless. So now O'Lear, weaponless except for the service knife at his belt, 
began the hazardous undertaking of climbing among the stalactites to a position approximately above the plutonian's head. The job required judgment. Some of the stone masses were insecurely anchored and would crash down at the lightest touch. Some were spaced so closely together that he could not get between them. Others were so far apart that it was difficult to get from one to another. Yet he made it somehow and unnoticed, for all eyes were turned on the tense drama being enacted below. From almost directly overhead he saw Marones being drawn upward. You saw, the plutonium was saying triumphantly in Mercurian, you saw me unmake your old fool, and now you will see that a lord of the green star is even softer, even weaker. Morones in that pitiless grass turned his face to the hateful grinning visage above him. In his last extremity, he was still angry. You devil, Morone shouted. You may murder me, but they'll get you. They'll get you. Who'll get me, said the plutonium purred stiltily, deferring the pleasure of the kill for another moment. Morones was having trouble with his breathing. His red face lolled from side to side. His eyes rolled in agony. Suddenly he saw O'Lear. Unbelievingly, he relaxed. I'm seeing things, he breathed. Who'll get me, persisted the plutonian, applying a little more pressure. The IFP, Marones gasped. Well, you little son of a gun, O'Lear thought, and then he jumped. He landed astraddle the neck of the plutonium, which almost like forking a horse. One brawny arm seized a horn, the other, with a lightning-swift dart, brought the point of the long-service knife to the pulsing black throat. Put him down, O'Lear spoke with a great pointed ear. Easy. Back on his feet, Marones began bellowing at the Mercurians. Utterly demoralised, they fled pell-mell. Marones came back. He said, nothing to tie him up with. That's all right, O'Lear replied studiously, keeping the knife point at exactly the right place. I'll ride him in. Get going. You and be tactful when you go through the door, or this sticker of mine might slip. With extreme care, the plutonian did exactly as O'Lear ordered him to. It was necessary to radio for one of the larger patrol ships to take O'Lear's enormous prisoner back to Earth for his trial. The officer testified, of course, and the plutonian was duly sentenced to death for the murder of the old Mercurian. Execution by dehydration was decreed, so that the body would be uninjured for scientific study, and today it is considered one of the finest specimens extant. In his testimony, however, O'Lear so minimised his own connection with the case that he received no public recognition. It was not until some months afterwards, when Marones, on leave, rode back with a shipload of translucent, that the whole story came out, emphatically and profanely. O'Lear finally consented to speak a few words for the telephoto news company, and he stepped off the little platform deferential hands tried to push him back. You haven't told them who you are, protested the announcer. Give your name and rank. Ah, they don't have to know that, O'Lear rejoined, keeping on going. They know it's one of the force, and that's all they have to know. Besides, there's a blackjack game going on, and I'm losing money every minute I'm out of it. End of section 14.